The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. says, As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you. When I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will manifest my holiness among you in the sight of the nations, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Pray with me. God Almighty, It is your declared will to gather your people together and manifest your holiness among us in the sight of the nations. And all shall know that you are the Lord when you do this. Here we are, your people, Lord. Here we are, fallen and broken. Come and and that all who see us would know that you are the Lord. Create integrity and wholeness and holiness among us. Chase away falseness, hypocrisy, deceit. Make us holy as you are holy. Show your holiness manifested among us, Lord, I pray. And God, I ask, would you use today's passage to accomplish some of that in us? This is your will, and I pray for it in the name of Jesus, for his glory. Amen. In the weeks leading up to Christmas, we've been looking at the book of Acts, and since it's been a month since we've been there, I'm going to take a a minute to put us back in that book. Beginning in Acts 2, we saw that the long-awaited and long-promised Holy Spirit had been poured out on the church. Promised in the Old Testament, promised by Christ when he walked the earth. Finally, in Acts 2, he comes. He's poured out. And the ingathering of the people from all of the nations, the ingathering of the people of God begins. It's chapter 2. And then in Acts 2, Two and three, we see glimpses of what that ingathering looks like. We saw miracles and preaching and large numbers of people being converted to Christ. Many people coming to faith. We saw the church working together in loving harmony, graciously dealing with one another's needs, laying down their lives for each other, in fact, sharing all that they had so that there was no need amongst the people of God. And we saw the outside community, those who were looking in at the church, looking at it with respect. Even those who disagreed looked at it with respect when they saw this growing, happy, holy, selfless, generous, worshiping community. That was the good. So the encouraging things, the exciting part. But there's also an ominous part that emerged in chapter 4. This is the Holy Spirit. God poured out, beginning to move. And Satan moves to respond to that. This is his realm, and it's being invaded. God is on the move, on the offensive, plundering the strong man's house, and like any homeowner, he rises up to lock the door if he can. 
to keep the invader out and to keep his subjects enslaved, to keep them in. And so he begins to move. He begins to attack the church and the mission. And the first thing he does, saw this in chapter 4, is he attempts to silence the witness of the apostles by straightforward threat of violence. He moves the Sanhedrin and the chief priest to arrest Peter and John and to threaten them. Hey, if you continue to make Jesus an issue, if you preach in his name and heal in his name, this will hurt you somehow or another. Clear physical threat. That's what they make. That's what the apostles hear. But in grace, the Spirit puts a greater fear in the apostles' hearts, the fear of God. And they reject that threat and say, hurt us if you will, we're going to follow the Lord. It's the first threat. And now we see the second one this morning. You can almost see Satan's thinking here. If I cannot scare them into silence, what else can I do? I will work to corrupt them from the inside so that their message gains no traction in the outside world. So that when they speak, people will look at them and say, yeah, okay, you have this message and you claim to be this new community. You even got 12 apostles. That's great. But it's all a facade because we know you're just like us. You're just as greedy as us. You're just as materialistic. You're just as hurried and busy. You get divorced at just the same rate as us. You're just as angry. You're just as vicious. You're just as deceitful. It's fake. You're hypocrites. That's what I'll do. That's what I'll make their community to be like. Hypocritical. Nice on the outside, rotten at the core. So we see in Acts chapter 5, and it's a critical problem for us to think about today. Who has not heard someone say, I don't want anything to do with the church, it's full of hypocrites. Who has not heard that? We've all heard that. Maybe some here even say that. Because it's true. Hypocrisy is a problem that the church faces today, and it's nothing new. It emerges in Acts chapter 5. And we need to hear this chapter, because though we know the problem exists, we seem to, to kind of look by it sometimes. I actually heard somebody advise us, you know how we should respond to that? Is we should say that, well, every sporting event, every supermarket you've ever been to is full of hypocrites. It doesn't keep you away from that. As if to say, hypocrisy is irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. It is clearly not irrelevant to God. We need to hear Acts chapter 5 and have fear rest in us, as is the response. Fear that cleanses, that eliminates hypocrisy in your life and in our life. So we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 5. I'm going to be reading verses 1 to 16, but actually I'm going to begin a few verses before at the end of chapter 4, so as to set the context. So I'll begin reading in Acts 4, verse 36 through 5, 16. 4:36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. 
and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and they found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. At the end of chapter 4, we saw that there was this great communal spirit amongst the thousands of believers who were in Jerusalem. That's what we were seeing there at the end of 4. The church was coming together constantly to alleviate the needs of its people, selling things even, bringing the proceeds to the apostles. It's a very public affair. I sell my car or, or my, my house or my, my vintage record collection or something that is valuable to me and is worth some money, and I bring it, and I actually literally physically put the money at the feet of the apostles while they're sitting there reigning over the affairs of the, of the church, administering different details. So I'm there. Everybody sees it. I bring it there. That's what this guy, Joseph of Cyprus, did. Now, Perhaps because he did this frequently, or maybe because of the, the manner in which he did it, he developed a nickname amongst the apostles, Son of Encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. And can you imagine what that would be like? The apostles, these guys who the, the power of God is very tangibly upon them, they're walking around healing and performing miracles and preaching in such power, and they call you the Son of Encouragement. You're an encouragement to them. Can you imagine what that would be like? At least one couple could, and they wanted the same for themselves. So Barnabas did this, 5-1. Ananias and Sapphira did something else. They also sold a field. They also brought the proceeds. But 
They only brought part of the proceeds. There's a little deception there. They put it there at the apostles' feet. They kept back some. And that word there for kept back in verse 2 and 3 implies a deceitful misappropriation. They were skimming. Somehow or another, they said, we're going to bring the whole proceed of this. They probably made it very publicly known. And they said, here's what we got. This part is the problem. When Peter confronts him in verse 4, he makes it very clear, Ananias, what are you doing? Before you sold it, it was yours. After you sold it, it was still yours. You could do with it whatever you wanted. Literally, it was under your power, under your authority. This wasn't communal property. Do with it what you want. People carried on business. Surely they sold things and didn't give any of it to the church. The various business proceeds. You could have given none. You could have given half, three quarters, all of it. Whatever you want. But what he chose to do was say, I'm going to give you all of it. And then keep back some. And that's the problem. The deception. The lie. That's the hypocrisy. Presenting it as if it is one thing when reality is something else. And Peter makes very clear what the issue is. You've lied not to men, but to God. Now, obviously, he did lie to the men. He lied to the apostles. He lied to the church. But Peter removes people from this and says, Ananias, you deal with God. You lied to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. Down in verse 9, you agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord. This is not about me, Peter says. This is you and God. As an aside here, this is an important passage for understanding something about the nature of God. Notice the parallel here. You lied to the Spirit. You lied to God. There are three separate entities in this book, in the New Testament. Father, Son, Spirit. Three separate entities, but there's only one God. And here we see very clearly the Spirit is God. Talked a lot about how the Son is God. Here it's very clear. You've tested the Spirit of the Lord. You've lied to the Spirit. You've lied to God. So let me close that off. This is an important passage understanding the nature of the Trinity. but That's not the main focus here. The deception is the main problem. Now instigated by Satan, certainly. Satan moved him to do this. This is Satan's tactic. It's his attack. I'll deceive them, he thinks. But Ananias bears all the responsibility. You're the one who lied. You're the one who contrived the plan. You're the one who's going to bear the consequences. And he falls down dead. God very decisively cuts hypocrisy out of his church. And all who heard of it had great fear. I imagine so. Can you imagine what it would be like if right after we took the offering, the elder who prayed called somebody out by name and said, what are you doing? And that person fell down dead. Can you imagine that? That's what happened. And great fear rests upon the whole community. And then it happens again to make it really clear to us. 
It could have worked out that they had come together, but it happens that they came separately so that we see the same thing twice so that we get the picture. Sapphira comes in later. And Peter asks her, Peter gives her a chance to repent. Sapphira, is this how much the land was sold for? Yep. Wrong answer. The men who just buried your husband are right here at the door, and they're going to bury you too. And she falls down dead. And great fear, he concludes, verse 11, came upon the whole church and all who heard about it. So not talking about the church, the outside world heard about this. Great fear came upon everybody. The fallout of this incident is interesting. Verses 12 to 16. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this section, but it does follow right after it to point out something interesting. What, before this, what's happening? The church is riding a wave. This is a, a severe pause, and what happens after? The church is still riding a wave with a slight difference. There's been a little divide amongst the outside world. Some people have taken a step back and are not going to touch this community. But they still have great respect for it. See, some feared even joining it, but they still held the people in high esteem. esteem. It's a little bit like you say, that's something I'm a little intimidated by. I'm not going to dare ridicule that. It's impressive, but I better not mess with that. But at the same time, it says that more people than ever were becoming Christians. Multitudes of men and women both were being added to the name of the Lord. So this cleansing event here has a a dividing effect. Some people take a step back, but more people than ever come all the way in and say, I must be cleansed by this Jesus. It's an interesting effect. And the apostles, the esteem of them is higher than ever. People just want Peter's shadow to touch people and they'll be healed. And it was happening. The church is held in high esteem. The apostles in even higher esteem. More people than ever are coming to faith after God deals with hypocrisy in his church. That's the text. A sobering one. The main emphasis for this morning is going to be in verses 1 to 11. Simply put, here's the main point. You look at this, And you say, God is passionate about holiness in his church. Is that not obvious? God is passionate about holiness in his church. We must be too. That's why it's in the Bible, so that we see it and so that we get God's perspective. We become equally passionate about holiness, equally opposed to hypocrisy, if you want to say it negatively. That's a statement. I'm just going to divide it in half. God is passionate about holiness. We must be too. To talk about those two halves and then give a little brief uh, uh, touching on the last, 12, last four verses, 12 to 16. Let me begin with God. God's expectation here. Here's the first point. God demands holiness without hypocrisy among his people. God demands holiness without hypocrisy among his people. 
That's his expectation, his desire, but I put it a little more strongly than just words expect or desire. I put demand because I'm trying to deal honestly with God's pretty radical action here. God's attitude is not, you know, holiness is a desirable thing, I guess. If you can get there, that'd be great. He demands it. He demands holiness. Chapter 1 of the book of 1 John describes the Lord by saying, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. In the original language, it's redundant to drive the point home. God is light, in Him is no darkness, none. None whatsoever. He is pure, righteous, and holy. Chapter 6 of the book of Isaiah describes how Isaiah saw the Lord in a vision, high and exalted, lifted up, the robe of His splendor filling all of the temple, and as the building itself shook, and the whole place filled with smoke, the angels cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. That's who He is, lifted up, high, exalted, other, separate, holy, holy, holy. The threefold repetition, driving it home. That's God. Set apart, pure, righteous. What does He expect? What does He demand of us? It's all over the Old Testament and repeated in the New. Leviticus 11, be holy because I am holy. It's repeated in the New Testament. Exodus 19, what is He making? A people who would be His treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Ezekiel 20 and 28, he makes, he calls back a people among whom I can manifest, that is display, among whom I can manifest my holiness in the sight of all the nations. God says, I am holy and I'm getting for myself a people in which I can display my holiness. I'm making a people that will be a display case that can show me, that can tell the truth about me to everyone. That can show off my splendor, my purity, my righteousness, my utter opposition to all things sinful. That's what my people are to be. That's what I'm making them. That's his agenda with us. Now he's dealing with fallen human beings. How can he do that? How can he make us holy? How can he display his holiness in us? We, he can't just tell us, shape up and then we'll do it. We're covered in sin. We can't even shape up our actions and our words, let alone our hearts, where God is most concerned. Because of the root of our actions and our thoughts and our speaking. We can't do that. It's not in our capability, but it is in the capability of the gospel. That's why Christ came. Jesus came to go to the cross to make sinful people holy in two different ways. You've got to follow this. One of them is being emphasized here, but you talk about the other one first. The cross makes people holy in two different ways. First, he works a great exchange. 
for people who trust him. He takes upon himself, Jesus takes upon himself our sinfulness, writes our sin, writes my sin when I trust him on his account, and then turns around and writes his righteousness on my account. I trust him. If you trust him, he switches sin and righteousness crediting our sin to him, his righteousness to us, so that when God looks at me, when he looks at you, he says, that person in my sight is holy, is forgiven, is pure, is righteous. I can fellowship with him. I'm holy, so is he. That's called positional holiness, or a a state of holiness, status. It's kind of like when you're born into a family, you're in the family. You have a standing in this place. Think of it as a legal undertaking. That's not primarily the focus here. But I need to say that because it's what leads to the second type of holiness. And if you haven't trusted Christ, you have to. Do you realize without that holiness, you have no chance of ever standing in God's presence? No chance of ever being with Him? None. But he provides the only way for you to get Christ's righteousness on your account and your sin on his account. Trust him. There's a great hope there. One hope there. Trust him. Positional holiness comes by Christ's work on the cross. But the next one is what he's really getting at in this passage. And the two are connected. But we need to be looking at, remember that passage in Ezekiel, the I want a people that I can manifest my holiness in? He wants holiness not just like on a legal ledger somewhere in heaven next to my name. He wants holiness in my life on Tuesday afternoon and Friday night. And we're making offerings in churches. He wants lived out holiness, moment by moment, day by day. You might call it conditional You want to use those two words, positional and conditional. The condition of your holiness day by day by day is different than the the status of holiness. After the second one, too, this holiness that is day by day by day, constant. He demands lived out holiness, not faked holiness. Because that's not holiness. Holiness that just looks like holiness on the outside. It looks like you have your act together but the inside is false. He doesn't want that. Once it lived out. Faked holiness. Faked obedience. Purity that's only skin deep. Does not display the holiness of God. Instead it displays God's not really concerned with actual holiness, with integrity. He just wants you to look good. Nothing really changes in the heart when you come to God. Come believe our message about Christ. Come join the new community and be a phony. And that's fine with God. He's not really serious about this. In fact, He only appears to be holy. We're like Him. Nice on the surface, rotten on the inside. That's a lie. 
God wants holiness all the way through us, displayed in all aspects of our life. That also comes by the work of the cross. At the cross, he makes us, makes a person positionally holy and gains them access to the Spirit. The Spirit comes and lives inside of you. And the Spirit's work, his agenda in your life is to, we use a word, sanctify, to make holy, to cleanse, to make us more like Christ, genuinely, integrity in and out both. He also intends that. Constantly. Conditional holiness. We cannot avoid that and say, oh, you know, I'm okay because he saved me and I'm righteous in his sight. Now I can live however I want. No, we can't do that. That's what Ananias and Sapphira did. They said, it, we'll just make it look good on the outside. We're going to still give a significant offering here. It's a little lie. Pretty small, really. Now, it covers over a whole bunch of other sins about what they're trusting in and their desire for the approval of man, etc., etc. But it's just a little lie. Satan moves into their heart and deceives them and says, this will get you what you want, approval of people. And you can even keep the money. And so they become deceivers. Presenting themselves as one way when in reality they are another. They've voided themselves of holiness. What about you? What about you? Are you living behind a facade? Are you faking it? To use the words of the passage, are you a liar? Are you a hypocrite? Presenting yourself one way when in reality the truth is something different. Is that you? The trick is, I don't know. Especially if you're good at it, I don't know. Ask yourself, is that me? Now notice carefully, I'm not exactly asking, are you a sinner? I'm talking about holiness here, and we need holiness in our lives, but I'm not asking you, are you a sinner? We're all sinners. I'm asking you, are you deceiving yourself and others about that? Sin that is being faced and dealt with and struggled with and that we're growing in is not the main problem. Now, yeah, we need to grow in that. He wants holiness. But as we are progressing in the holiness and fighting against sin, that's pleasing to God. The problem is the attitude that hides it or ignores it. Understand the difference there. I'm not asking you, are you a sinner? The answer to that is yes. I'm asking you, are you hiding it? Are you being deceptive about it? Are you lying about it? Churchy people are really good at this. If you hang around the church long enough, around Christians long enough, and you're awake, you can figure out what you're supposed to say. And you can figure out how you're supposed to act. Where you're supposed to give the mmm of approval. 
what you're supposed to not talk about, or what you're supposed to preface by saying something like, I don't mean to do, and then you do it. You can figure out how to posture all that stuff. Maybe even write a check and give a significant offering here and there. Serve on a certain committee or whatever. You can figure that out if you're around. But when you leave here, the mask comes off and the real you shows up. More times than, than I would care to have experienced, I'll stand in the parking lot somewhere at a church and watch the change. Smile, 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 smile until you get about 25 yards away from the church. Frown. Gentle comments of, come on, honey, let's go. And by the time you're in the car, buckle up and let's get out of here. (laughs) What is that if not hypocrisy? I'm not saying I never yell at my kids and tell them to buckle up. (laughs) But in telling you that, I'm avoiding the hypocrisy. And I'm also telling you, I'm repenting of that sin and trying to grow in gracious communication that is still appropriately stern and gets the message across. Arguments with your spouse that turn into pleasant, lovey-dovey conversation when you pull in the church parking lot. Or you go to work and the real you shows up. The vicious and vulgar one. The greedy one. The backstabbing one. Whatever it is, sometimes very consciously, sometimes more unconsciously, whatever it is, what I'm talking about is two yous. The one you show us and the real one. The one that says, this is how I am. Now maybe, yeah, I've got some problems. But you present it as, yeah, my husband, my wife, whatever. It's been a little hard recently. Actually, you were fighting about divorce last night. That's a little tough recently. That's faking it. That's hypocrisy. Two yous. One you show us, one that's real. Could involve money, could involve just anything. That's the problem. That comes from somewhere. It does not come from the Holy God. It does come from the Father of lies. Now, perhaps not Satan personally. Satan can't be everywhere, and the probability that he's actually at work in your life himself is pretty small. He probably has bigger fish to fry. But his whole kingdom flows out of who he is, and it is a whole kingdom based on deception and lies. He is the Father of lies. He speaks his native tongue when he lies, and you're speaking his tongue. You don't want that. Bring it out into the light. Sin dies in the light. It breeds and grows in the dark. Satan is deceiving you into thinking, I want to stay in the dark. That's better for me. That's not true. That itself is a lie. And you're believing that and becoming a liar. Don't do that. Bring it out. God sees it. He knows. 
one way or another, at one time or another, he will decisively deal with that. Is that not what this passage is saying? See that fear and respond. That gets us to the second point. How are you supposed to respond to this? You see God act like this. How are you supposed to respond? Second point here, fear, repent, and pursue holiness. Fear, repent, and pursue holiness. And it all begins with fear, which seems a little bit counterintuitive to us these days. In our culture, we like to talk only, unfortunately, we like to talk only about a gentle and loving and kind God who comforts us. That's partially true. But this passage says something else. It points out something else. God knew exactly what the response to his actions would be. God never does something and then says, Wow, look how that went. I didn't realize what the fallout of that would be. Whoops, I should have thought that through again. That never happens with God. He knew great fear, great fear would come over the church and upon everybody. That's why he did this. So that great fear would come upon them and upon you. He did it deliberately so that you would fear. Do you realize fear can be your friend? You often know I talk about that word, but fear can be your friend. In fact, we communicate like this all the time. Think about it. If you're a parent, if you're a babysitter, and you're, you're overseeing children, you don't say, Johnny, don't play in the street. Because that may, perhaps, there's a small chance that it might result in a, a sudden collision between you and a moving object of larger mass. Blunt force trauma may result in severe and perhaps even fatal internal hemorrhaging. So don't do that. He's going to say, what? Nice and antiseptic and, and clinical about it all misses the whole point. You say, Johnny, if you play in the street, you're going to get run over by a car and killed. That's why I talk to my kids. <laughs> and you do it as graphically as you can. Because you want them to hear the smack. To get a picture of the fist against the hand. And not just there's a small possibility. It will happen and you will die. Not just be injured. That's totally fear-based communication. As graphic and as scary as I can make it. Why? For fear's sake? No. Because you love Johnny. And you know there's a danger out there that he is likely only barely aware of and liable to forget while he's playing catch and riding his bike. And so you want to make it something that rises up and sticks in his mind so that he doesn't forget because it might cost him everything. Suddenly, before he even realizes it, the only moment he'll realize it is a split second before the car hits him. And you know that. And so you frighten him out of love. That's what God's doing here in this passage. There is great danger 
There's something present here that might cost you everything and will certainly cost you something. He wants people to fear. And in verse 5, great fear when they heard about it. Verse 11, great fear when they heard about it. What's the fear? He saw right through them. He caught them in their secret sin and he judged them. What about my secret sin? Is that not the obvious connection? He saw them when we didn't and he judged them. He also sees me, doesn't he? I don't have any additional protection. I don't have a cloaking device that hides me from God. He also sees me and my secret sin. What does he think of it? Am I next? That is obviously the train of thought here. And God wants people to think like that. Not so that they improve their hiding abilities, but so that they stop their secret sin and bring it out where he is gracious and merciful to give us help in our time of need. There is great danger in hiding and walking on in sin. Danger for you. You lose Christ. You lose Jesus. At least you lose intimacy with Him as you wander away into unrighteousness. Looking good on the outside does not bring you communion with Jesus. It does not bring you drink from the fountain of life. It does not bring you morsels of the bread of life. It does not give you the light of life. It gives you darkness and thirst and hunger. No matter what you look on the outside, some of you are faking it, and you know this is true. Your life sucks. If I should use that word or not, but that's what your life is like. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have. <laughs> your life is not good. <laughs> you know this. You look good on the outside, and inside you're dying. Because you lost Jesus somewhere back there. I don't know if you lost him forever, but you lost him right now. And the danger for you is that the fact that you don't have him right now, the longer you don't have him right now, should make you ask, did I ever have him, and will I ever have him? Plenty of people are faking it in totality. More people than we know are not Christians and are in the church. There's a danger for you. And there's a danger for everybody sitting around you because it teaches them lies about God. It teaches them that God doesn't really care about your heart. Just about your outward looks and behaviors. You can fake it, be okay. And there's a danger for the outside world looking in. It says, that community is phony. Their message has no power in it, no effect. Why bother? There is great danger in this. And so he warns us. Graphically, he strikes two people dead. 
so that we will see how serious this is. He does this right here at the beginning of the church. He doesn't do it all the time, thankfully, or all of us would be dead. But he does it right here at the beginning of the church so that we can keep reading this and see that's how he deals with it. That's what he thinks about it. Maybe he'll judge you some way in this life. Use the word discipline if you like. Discipline involves a judgment. Maybe he'll act in this life, maybe just in the next, and you lose eternal reward. The New Testament's clear. People mistreat communion, and they suffer and fall asleep. They die. James implies that people are sometimes sick because of sin. Physically even, God still works in this life because of sin. He settles all accounts at the end. He does that right here at the beginning of the church so that we would see, so we would get the picture and then build the church with that piece in the puzzle already. That's what he thinks about hypocrisy. Don't go there. So instead, fear and repent. Turn away from that. Bring that stuff into the light. And as you face it and deal with it, God suddenly switches from being your opponent to being your ally in dealing with this. He's about growing you in holiness and showing a progression in holiness, of sanctifying you. That's what he wants to do. So you bring it out and you say, God, help me. You bring it into the light with other people. God administers grace then to you through them. And he changes you. Fear, repent, and pursue holiness. Pursue integrity of heart. Honesty with people. Take off the mask. Repent. Pursue holiness. That's the second point. Finally, I'm going to be brief here as I look at verses 12 to 16. This passage presents the, the second Avenue of attack of Satan against the church and against its mission. Tries to silence through fear, tries to corrupt. There's a third one coming up in Acts. Satan acts and God responds, and what's the result? Here's the third point. Holiness in the community results in the growth of the community. Holiness in the community results in the growth of the community. God maintains holiness and he keeps moving and keeps working in their midst. This passage exists in a context. It's not just an an isolated passage concerned with how the church should be, holiness and hypocrisy and, and those things. It's in a context about a church, a group of people that's been launched on a mission and is pursuing outsiders with a message. Before it's going well, after it's going well, the key is that in here in the middle, this is an element for it continuing to go well. How do you think it would have gone if Peter had said, well, that's okay, Ananias. I can understand. I would have done the same. And all the apostles said, "Uh uh-huh. Do you think that the Spirit would have continued to move and use them to heal? Some, perhaps, I can't say for certain, but I doubt it. Do you think that the esteem of the, of the outsiders of the church would have increased or decreased? I think decreased. 
This is the way things work. We would have seen the hypocrisy argument rising up right there. Why join you, a bunch of hypocrites? It exists in a context that's about mission. If we taint the, mes- the message with hypocrisy, we blunt it, which is Satan's goal. If we taint ourselves with hypocrisy, we drive away, we grieve the spirit, which is Satan's goal. And so we go out looking all shiny on the outside, saying, come join us. It all looks good. It's rotten on the inside, and it's powerless. Satan's really happy with that kind of a church. A church that looks good on the outside, has no spirit power, and is fraught with sin on the inside. That's a great church from Satan's perspective. May it not be us. We're on a mission. We're launched on a mission. We are supposed to be about something. Engaging people out there with a message. And we need integrity so that we tell the truth in our message with our mouths and with our lives. And we need the Spirit's power if we're going to awaken the dead. And those two things come from holiness and are chased away by hypocrisy. God, therefore, is passionate about holiness in his church. And we must be too. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.